Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. This is Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barrett. I'll be joined in just a moment by Simon Foster. And when I'm joined by the aforementioned Simon Foster, we'll be doing some TV reviews and some movie reviews. Expect conversation around Free Guy, the big new Ryan Reynolds film. We're going to look at Marvel's What If. We're looking at new Aussie series, The Newsreader, Apple TV's Coda. We've got a whole bunch of stuff. There's an interview with Jonathan Hensley. He's the director of a brand new Liam Neeson film, The Ice Road. We'll be chatting with him. Folks, it's a big show. Let's get cracking. This is not like TV only better. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. Folks, this is Screen Watching. My name, Dan Barrett. Simon Foster, I mentioned him a moment ago. Here he is in the flesh. It's Simon Foster. <laughs> All those Simons are with you today. Hello, Dan. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, Screen Watchers. Yes, this did suddenly turn into a very busy week on Screen Watching after a few weeks of how do we see this movie and is it showing in cinemas and what does lockdown mean for movie and TV watching? All of a sudden, we've got a chock-a-block show once again, so I'm keen to get into it. I mean, we've had big titles the last couple of weeks, but it's not like this week's any different, really, in regards to, hey, there's movies coming out and a good portion mm. of Australia still can't go and see it. So, yeah, Brisbane... Brisbane's out of lockdown now, so those guys can go along and see Free Guy at the cinema. But I have to say, like, I'm in Sydney and there's no way I'll be able to see it. It's not available on Disney Plus or anything. It's just going to be yet another movie coming and going that I can't get my little peepers on. And everyone will be watching how it does in the US with um, the last big sort of run of blockbuster films, the Suicide Squad and the Space Jams and the like, uh, opening big or not opening at all. Um, they're keen to see how Free Guy does because it's literally just going to be a cinema release. There's no sort of backup uh, online or streaming option for this film. So um, everyone's eyes are peeled. Yeah, look, you say that as just a couple of hours ago, Venom 2 has been pushed back a month because of COVID Delta um, cinema attendance concerns. So Yeah, you called you know. it. You said this last week. Anyway, Simon, we do have a lot to talk about. Let's dive right in. It stinks. This week I was able to see the new film on Apple TV called Coda. Now, this was a big deal coming out of Sundance. It was the highest paid for acquisition out of the last Sundance Film Festival. CODA stands for Child of Deaf Adult. You're the girl with the deaf family? Yeah. yeah. I just want to tell you right now. And you sing. Interesting. I've been coaching for Berkeley College of Music. I can help you get a scholarship. It's the story of Ruby Rossi, who is the only hearing person in a deaf family. She uh, works with her father, uh, Frank, played by the wonderful Troy Kotzer, on his fishing boat, um, alongside her brother, played by Daniel Durant. Um, her mum, the wonderful Marley Matlin, are all uh, deaf, and she is in charge of communicating between their family and all the hearing worlds. So for her entire life, this young woman, this teenage girl, has been um, uh, signing on behalf of her whole family. But what's happening is that she's um, emerging as a very talented singer and her high school teacher, played by Eugenio Derbez, uh, wants to pair her with 
um, the young man, Ferdia Walsh Peller, who was fantastic in Sing Street a few years ago, and wants to give her a scholarship to Berkeley, um, the music school in Boston. But of course, that's going to cause a rift with the family. Now, those beats are fairly familiar. Um, we've seen this kind of stuff before, uh, this sort of story teenage girl sort of coming out of herself finding a new life away from her family with the added sort of emphasis of of hearing impaired parents and 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 family life this takes on a very potent emotional core um, a real heart to this film that i've got to say absolutely knocked me for six um as ruby amelia jones is just extraordinary not only does she have the most beautiful voice you will hear but she is so empathetic on screen and you feel every one of the um sort of emotional tugs she's going through like i say this is a fairly simple sort of story and and not shot um in any sort of spectacular way by by female director Sean uh, Sean Hedder um but it just nails the emotion so perfectly that um I got to say by the end um and I won't give too much away but it involves a Joni Mitchell classic I was a sobbing wreck so I absolutely love Coda um good on Apple TV plus I wish I'd seen it in the movies because I think this would have been very empowering in the cinemas but um uh, as an Apple plus acquisition it's it's one of their best See I'm pretty keen to check this one out in a way, I'm starting to get a little bit disdainful about Apple because it's such a small catalogue of titles. Yes, but it is. there is so much on a regular... Like, every month there's at least one thing on there that I'm really very keen to see because it's very much in my basket. And I'm going to have to subscribe to this thing on a permanent basis. And I could not be just more frustrated about that whole idea. Are they... Is that by design, do you think? Are they literally picking and choosing the, the, the very best movies or, or, or very high-profile movies just to... Um, secure audiences for those titles. Do you ever think we're going to see a day when Apple are releasing, like Netflix, you know, 20 different past well, series and, and premieres a month? Like, essentially, it really seems like uh, that Apple are following the HBO model of things, which yes. HBO, as much as we talk about HBO sort of dominating TV, like each year, there isn't really a whole lot of output that come from HBO Classic. There's certainly more shows with the HBO Max sort of being bundled into it all now. And we'll see more because that's kind of becoming more of a synergized experience from the US. But traditionally, HBO haven't released that many series every year, but everything that they released was always something that needed to be checked out because like, they had a pretty high batting average. I don't think that any other studios really sort of match that level of quality, but Apple TV seems to be coming in there. Like, It's almost as though Apple TV really is the next HBO. The industry read it as a fairly significant statement by Apple when they acquired Coda. It really was sort of the most bid after bid four title coming out of Sundance the response from the audience there was um every bit as sort of overwhelmed and, and um, enthusiastic as, as mine was so it was a real statement from Apple that they acquired this and paid some pretty big bucks for it as well I'm not entirely convinced that movies really move the needle much in terms of Apple TV so I'd imagine that while uh, for example this film is fairly big in terms of coming out of Sundance I don't think the mainstream are necessarily across these things much until they start actually getting like a mainstream release around the place. Mm. From what I understand about streaming services, TV shows really are about acquiring people outside of the streaming service to want to sign up to things. But when people are in the environment of a streaming service and they find these films that they connect with, it keeps them on the service. So these films are about retention rather than they are about acquiring sort of new excited customers. And I do suspect that this is a film where your average person who just comes across the film, this will really give them that value add to Apple TV Plus that 
I don't know, like I think a lot of subscribers to Apple TV Plus wonder why it is that I keep on subscribing to the service because there is such a limited amount of content coming through. But at the same time, it's stuff that resonates. Like it is most of my favorite TV and movie experiences from the last year and a bit have been through Apple TV Plus. Plus they're acquiring some some big names. They're letting some star power do the talking for them. Justin Timberlake in Palmer, Tom Hanks in Greyhound, um, the one, the Cherry, the one that starred Spider-Man, whatever his name is. And <laughs> Tom so there's Holland. Some, Tom Holland. So um, there's some, you know, they're picking and choosing fairly carefully and playing the, the, the star game as well. Mm. Anyway, suddenly one to watch. For sure. Let us move on. Let's talk about the new ABC TV show, an Aussie drama called The Newsreader. You just do not know how to put a sock in I have done a year and a half doing regional. I spent two years as a senior reporter. I've got blokes here who've done 15 years. They go out, they do absolute shit. They don't mind because that's the job. 60 Minutes are sending female reporters to war zones. (laughs) Anywhere you go is a war zone, Helen. You're a war zone on two legs, so yeah, try your luck there. See if they'll take you. I will. Well, let me tell you something, though, sweetheart. Other networks, they hear about the shit we have to put up with from you. They wouldn't touch you with a 10-foot barge pole. Now, I'm not kidding, Helen. I am not kidding. Every day, I have to back you up. Every day, people come in here and they say, Helen Norville, she's a nightmare. She's got a face like a slapped ass. But I bat them all back. Set in 1986, this new Aussie drama is about an aspiring TV presenter. Dale Jennings is working in the newsroom, but he's got aspirations to be a TV news anchor. He's young, overly green, and doesn't exude the gravitas that were believed to be necessary for TV presenters back in the day. Translation, he's not an alpha male, and he doesn't present that way on screen. But he does have a very TV newsreader name, Dale Jennings. Ridiculous. Meanwhile, you've got Anna Torv. She's an established TV presenter named Helen Norville. She's desperate to do more substantial news reporting on the show, but the executive producer of the news keeps dismissing her because she's a woman. She's on TV to be seen and not heard. But Norville is popular, and when she ends up cracking the shits at the producer for saddling her with the young Dale Jennings to produce a deeper news story, she's off the air that night, and the TV station gets bombarded with calls asking if she'll be back on air. When Norville leaves, Jennings takes over the news story being produced, It's a puff piece on a civilian female US astronaut about to go into space on a mission called Challenger. Without giving the rest of the story away, know that Jennings and Norville establish a friendship based on professional outsiderdom, and the two find themselves back in the studio doing live daytime reporting on the Challenger explosion. That's the first episode. The rest of the season follows the two developing their careers through the mid-80s while reporting on iconic real-life events. Ultimately, the show is a period piece version of the HBO series The Newsroom, And like the newsroom, the show feels at odds with itself, creating fictional newsroom tension while reporting on real-world events. The events of the newsroom, however, pale in comparison to the actual stories that they're reporting on. Now, while I bristled at those elements of the show, the series itself is still pretty winning. The cast are incredibly charming, with Anna Torv and Sam Reid as the leads, and there's a really strong supporting cast, including an unrecognisable William McInnes and Robert Taylor as the newsroom veterans who are being pushed aside for the new talents. The show, it's gorgeously filmed, and it looks as 1986 as you can get, even if the show does feel a little bit too soundstagey at times and not quite realistic enough. The Newsreader, it's definitely a must-watch. Okay, so this is really interesting. I wasn't able to see any of this before we record this, but um, the bits I've seen out of it look like kind of 
uh, a little bit of my favorite, one of my favorite movies, Broadcast News, mm. and a little bit of Frontline. Now, I, I guess maybe I was led astray by Frontline. It doesn't look like that kind of that kind of satirical comedy, but there does seem to be a dynamic there, which reminds me of the James L. Brooks movie, which is, like I say, is, is uh, something I really love. Yeah, look, there's nothing about this show that feels particularly original and it doesn't feel that fresh because there's been so many similar newsroom dramas over the years that have mined very similar territory. At the mm. same time, there's still something winning about this as a production. And it's, as I said, it's just not doing anything particularly fresh or innovative, but you're still going to have a great time watching it. Quality ABC drama, well-made Australian television. That's um, that's not a bad thing at all. Uh, the newsreader, do we have a debut date on that? Is that happening yet? Uh, so as we're recording this on Friday morning, haven't seen it yet on the TV, but this coming Sunday night, it all comes to life. Unlike some of the other ABC shows of late, it's not going to drop all at once on iView. Instead, it will be a week-to-week passed out series. So every Sunday night, check it out. It's called The Newsreader. Um, in select cinemas around the country, and there's only a select few cinemas open at the moment, is a new French film called Miss. Je vais faire Miss France. We first meet Alex as a nine-year-old boy um, trying to find some space in this world between genres. He has a dream to one day be elected Miss France. Now, we catch up with Alex 15 years later. He's lost his parents and his self-confidence and stagnates in a fairly monotonous life. Um, By chance, uh, he has a meeting uh, that will awaken this forgotten dream in him. He then decides to compete as Miss France in the Miss France contest um, by hiding his identity as a boy. Um, what this film talks about is uh, very much finding yourself. Uh, Alex searches for that inner femininity. Um, he certainly has the bone structure and he has the outward appearance uh, of a woman, but he and a very beautiful woman at that, but he is um, all the while hiding um, his true self or is he? Maybe he's um, exposing his true self as well. Um, this is a very fanciful film. It clearly couldn't take place in real life. Ten minutes of background checks uh, by the uh, Miss World, Miss France organization would expose Alex for, for what he's done. But this fairy tale sort of story is filled with very real world emotions um, and friendships and family connections. Um, it's all about the outsider finding a way onto the inside, but then also realizing that being an outsider isn't such a bad thing. So it hits all the right notes um, as Alex, um, Alexander Vetter is terrific in the lead role, as are all the support cast. So this one was a big hit at the French Film Festival um, earlier this year and deserves to be seen. It's a lovely, lovely film. Very sweet as well. That's two out of two for me shedding a tear. I think I'm getting soft in my old age, but um, both movies so far have, uh, have hit a bit of a nerve. You're getting weak, Foster. Weak. I am getting a bit soft. I know. I can't help it. I'm an old man. (laughs) We're about to get in some negative territory for old Dan Barrett here as we look at the new Marvel series, What If? Every universe is different. Each one unique. Slow down a little bit. There's a few people in the room that don't understand. Not me. I, I get it. It's not like this is the first cartoon series you'll have seen based on Marvel characters. Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four have been mainstays on TV and cartoons since the 60s, and I certainly came to both Marvel and its comics in the early 90s thanks to some very good X-Men and Spider-Man cartoons. But this is the first from the studio responsible for making the live-action films, the MCU. And like those films and TV shows, this cartoon feels big and expensive. It's a blockbuster cartoon show. 
So why does it feel so disposable? The premise of What If apes the comic book of the same name. First launched in the late 70s, it tells moments from Marvel history with an alternate history. The first issue focused on what if Spider-Man joined the Fantastic Four, but progressively got stranger and weirder the more it explored the deeper canals of Marvel stories. It mined the comic book universe for its stories. The TV show takes the same approach, except instead of mining the comics, it focused on the stories that we know from the movies and TV shows. The first episode takes its plotting from the first Captain America film and asks the question, what if Peggy Carter became Captain America instead of Steve Rogers? What if she'd been the one that took the super serum that made Steve the hero we knew in the quote-unquote real reality? What follows is a half-hour episode that follows many of the same beats as the first Captain America film, but it plays out differently. It's the butterfly effect in the MCU. It's ultimately fun enough, but it doesn't really feel anywhere near substantial enough as well. That was always the problem with the What If comics, and it feels exactly the same here. Thus slight and trivial as that alternate reality fictions of what is already an alternate reality fiction. It's a funhouse mirror reflecting a funhouse mirror. Stories are short, slight, and don't really resonate with anyone beyond the most hardcore fans. If you're a casual to light viewer of the films, I do wonder how much you're going to find this cartoon to be engaging. It's good for what it is, but it's not must-watch TV by any other means. What I do want to leave you with though is this. The animation quality in this is absolutely gorgeous. It's styled like cell animation, even if it's likely computer animated in its entirety. It meets the standard of a lot of the high-budget anime we've seen from Netflix over the last couple of years. That element of it is an absolute joy to watch. It looks like a lot of fun. I'm surprised to hear that it didn't um, boil your potatoes in any significant way. Um, is this the Marvel organization, the, the, the push to get content and as much content out as possible, maybe going a, a bridge too far? Not really. So there's absolutely an audience for this. It's just that I think it's the hardcore Marvel fans, not the casual viewers. So if you go to the cinema to go and see a Marvel film, on the opening night, it's going to be nothing but hardcore fans in there. But over that opening weekend, you're going to find a few more casual people who come along to give it a bit of a gander. And like they'll watch it. They probably won't really think about Marvel films in between going to see the Marvel movies. But there are those people that spend all their time reading about the minutiae. They'll be the ones that understand the closing sequences before like they actually see them. So like when suddenly an infinity cube's on screen, they'll know what an infinity cube is and like they'll yeah. understand what that is. This show is very much for them and there's nothing wrong with really producing a show for that hardcore fan element. But I did find that because it's it's playing really in the margins of complete sort of uh, fantasy speculation over stuff. It's hard to get invested in that in a way that I'd like to have an actual emotional connection with the story. It should be pointed out that they've got a fairly big name voice cast to come along and do this you've got the late chadwick boseman back as t'challa you've got Haley atwell in there as captain carter and i am reading this off imdb but samuel l jackson jeremy renner so neil mcdonough sebastian stan it looks like all the big names have come across from the the live action mcu stuff sorry there's a caveat all the big names who are still currently under contract at marvel so ah, yes. you'll notice that people like, say, for example, Robert Downey Jr. He's not there playing not there. Iron Man. Uh, nope. The Chris that plays Captain America, uh, Chris, uh, which, which Chris, Chris is Evans. it? Chris Evans. Uh, Chris Evans isn't there playing Captain America in this. It's another voice right. actor. Scarlett Johansson, surprisingly, not going to be on board as the Black Widow. But, big surprise. Uh, like a lot of the supporting characters, like there's fairly big names that have been brought in to perform some of these roles as well. So in the first episode, you've got a army general who's been uh, voice acted by Bradley Whitford, for example. 
Yep. And so like there's pretty big expensive name voice talent behind all of this. All right. I'm going to have to check it out. I feel almost compelled to because it's got the MCU brand to it, although um, we'll wait and see. I am intrigued by your uh, description of the animation style. I am a big fan of beautiful animation, so um, let's see what it looks like. Yeah, I'm, I'm not 100% on board with the specific style that they've chosen here, but in terms of just the quality of the animation, like it's absolutely there on screen. Um, something else, maybe if you just want to watch it casually, maybe skip this first episode because it really was a very much sort of beat by beat sort of take of the first Captain America film and then with a few like dovetails here and there. My understanding is that once you get past that first one, it gets a little bit weirder and stranger and that's probably where it's going to be a bit more interesting to watch. But at the moment, from what we've seen, it's a little bit humdrum. It's called What If. It is on the Disney Plus channel, um, also via the good people at Disney, although acquired through their connection with 20th Century Fox, is the new Ryan Reynolds action comedy called Free Guy. Hey, bud, you ever think that there's got to be more? More than what? The stuff we do day after day. Literally not once. Today's going to be different, Goldie. What are we looking at? Who are you? We ran into each other the other day. How did you find me? I waited outside by the murder train. Guys, I have to tell you something. There is no easy way to say this. This world, it's a video game. I really want to kiss you. Is that weird? Listen to me. You're not real. Wait, you let who kiss you? Guy. There's not a button for that. Oh, he found the button. The guy of the title is a nebbish bank teller who discovers he is actually an NPC or a non-player character, a kind of a background figure in an open world video game. He decides to become the hero of his own story and one that he plans to rewrite himself. Now his in-game crush is a sunglass wearer, who's a, they're the avatars of the real world gaming community, in the form of Molotov Girl. Now in real life she is controlled by Millie, who invented the software only to have it stolen by corporate dick Antoine. And what Guy represent is a manifestation of AI that she that may be able to help her get back control of the game. Now, this is a very high concept comedy, and that can be kind of a dirty word when it comes to uh, studio output. But when high concept comedy really works, you get the likes of Ghostbusters, you get the likes of Jumanji or Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, just real sort of soaring flights of imagination that um, absolutely capture you both visually and at their very best emotionally as well. And that's what Free Guy does. Now, I was surprised at how well this works as not just an action adventure and a brilliantly conceived sort of different world of, of computer gaming, but also a really sweet romantic comedy. Um, Jodie Comer and Ryan Reynolds together have a great chemistry. They're surrounded by terrific support cast. Um, Joe Kerry from Stranger Things, uh, Lil Ray Howery, um, Utbesh Umduka, which is the first time I've said that. They're both terrific as the, the real-world um, uh, gaming uh, technicians who try to put a stop to what they're doing. Um, and then to round things off, you've got Taika Waititi as Antoine, who I thought at first was going to clash a bit with the comic stylings of Ryan Reynolds um, to have these two sort of very, uh, um, I guess, mannered comic performances on screen at the same time um, might have worked against the film, but it doesn't. They're, they're very, very funny together um, in the scenes they have together. This is really Ryan Reynolds' film, and um, if you think you've seen the best that he can do with the Deadpool films, 
Imagine taking all the really horrible stuff out of those movies and just being left with the total charm of this guy. He's very funny. He's very self-deprecating. Everyone involved with this is on the same wavelength and has just such a ball bringing this to life. This is the most fun I've had watching movie in a long, long time. Um, and just the visuals of it are enough to, to get that over line, but there's so much more to enjoy as well. So I can't believe how effusive I am about Free Guy, but it was it was great fun. Two things. One, I can't believe what the ledges that I'm about to step out on here and say something really wild and crazy, but Ryan Reynolds... Okay. He's such a charming, winning person. Like it's just so difficult not to like that guy. Controversial, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it is, Um, and he can. There is that sort of element about him where he does sometimes come across as you know the leader of the frat house kind of dude. Mm. Um, I mean, he literally was in. Uh, what was the what was the film? Van, Van Wilder. Wilder. Yeah, <laughs> yes, he was. But um, he tempers that with a real sweetness um, and a very self-deprecating style. Um, and he, it's just a, a great character to, to hide behind uh, Guy in this film. Um, and I've got to say, Jodie Comer, who I know she's Killing Eve, I think mm. is her big show, isn't yeah. it? Which I've never seen. But but um, she is just wonderful on screen in this. She's tough and funny and can play sort of high-end action as well as sort of uh, very sweet and soft. So um, I became an instant fan uh, after seeing her in this. Um, and everyone else works out a treat. And it's such a beautiful-looking film. You know, you... you Sometimes you can see these sort of CGI heavy movies and just become more CGI, more CGI. But it's done with such style and such beautiful design elements in this that it's it's just a joy to watch. The the, the um, darker, bizarro world version of this would be something like Adam Sandler's Pixels, which you could tell is just like a, a, a high concept comedy for the sake of it without any sort of heart or brains behind it. This is the opposite of that. It is full of heart and full of brains. Boy, I'd forgotten about Pixel. <laughs> Lest we forget. Everyone had forgotten about Pixel, even some of the people in it, I think. I'm actually kind of looking forward to the fact that I'm not going to be able to see this in the cinema because you mentioned all those classic big concept comedy films. Largely, I discovered those as like VHS classics when I was a youngster. And it's been a long yep. time since I've been able to discover a big film like that on the small screen at home. And I'm kind of curious to know whether I can capture that magic again and have a film live on in my heart the way that those films did, but only watching it from home. So this is kind of be the litmus test for that one. I, I, I hope it does work for you because obviously with Cinema Shut, and I do want to reach out and thank the guys at, um, at Disney and 20th Century Fox for getting me a, a screener link that I was able to watch on, on the laptop. I was reluctant to do that because I knew that this was going to look beautiful and, and be a big screen film. But I think, to you, and exactly to your point, the smaller, um, sweeter, more touching elements of the stories, of the characters, comes through in these moments. And that's why Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Jumanji and Ghostbusters are those sort of movies because they exist beyond just the big special effects. Mm. Simon, you mentioned Taika Waititi. Let's do a very classy segue here because Waititi's involved in this next production. It's a TV series called Reservation Dogs. Act normal. No one has seen a stolen food truck, would you? No. Someone stole the truck. Broad daylight. Put your seatbelt on. Seatbelt. People safety. We're stealing a f***ing chip truck. I do not give a shit, man. Put your seatbelt on. We're not Go! Apparently it was full of chips. I've never seen anything like that. You're good thieves. Best in town. Oh, thank you. It is a small town. 
Reservation Dogs is a fairly traditional coming-of-age story about a group of actually fairly nice dirtbag teenagers living in Oklahoma. Where the series feels a little bit fresh is that the series features a predominantly indigenous cast of Native Americans and is set on a reservation. The series is created by Sterling Harjo and Taika Waititi. The show is a low-key comedy that incorporates fantastical elements into the storytelling. For example, there's a scene in the first episode that has our cast of characters falling victim to a drive-by paintball shooting. It's got our heroes all brutally pummeled by paintballs in a scene that's filmed to evoke the film Platoon. This isn't the only movie reference throughout the series. Now, this is probably actually where I stumbled a little bit with the show. I'm too old for the show. As a teen to early 20-something, I would have eaten the show up. It's a story about friends who are banding together in their own little world, facing against the barriers that the world throws up at them. It's the sort of relatable coming-of-age story we all connected with when we were younger. Whether that was John Hughes films in the 80s, Kevin Smith films in the 90s, the American Pie films in the early zeros, noughts. Now, while the show keeps on throwing these movie references at the viewers, whether it's a platoon reference or an ongoing joke about one of the characters named after a character in the film Willow, all the references will hit perfectly for a man of your vintage, Simon, but I don't know how many of the viewers that the show is actually aimed at would get the reference. Now... I found the first episode perfectly funny enough, it's charming, it's engaging, but as I said, I'm not really the audience for this, and I wouldn't expect I'll be making a return visit to the reservation. It looks, and I haven't seen this as yet, but it, it looks to be playing in the same sort of arena that, he, that Taika Waititi did with one of his first films, Boy, which was a, all set in a very sort of small Maori community in New Zealand and, and um, also spoke to obsessions with... Uh, film and 80s music and past film references. So this sounds like, I think you're right. I think this sounds like something that my vintage will enjoy, A, because there's a certain sentimental quality about all the things that the, the families and the kids involved enjoy because they're, they're from my era. Plus it's got a certain sort of um, sentimentality about it. So yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing this. Where can we see it in Australia? Uh, so in Australia, it's playing on Foxtel and Binge. And in the US, it's an FX on Hulu show. But the thing is, Simon, that the actual storytelling and everything about it, there's nothing that's really sort of mature and substantial enough for you to connect into. It's really something which is made... Like, there's shows and movies which are hangout shows. Okay? Mm. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that for the right audience, like, those they're really important um, screen works for people to guys connect into. I referenced the John Hughes films specifically there because when you're of a certain age, you can connect into those films in a really meaningful way where adults watching those films, like you can kind of appreciate the craft of it, but it's not really made for them. Like it's not really, it, it doesn't connect with them in that same sort of spiritual way. Like yeah, it's, no, there's something totally about like the age I, thing. And so this show works as a hangout show for teens to 20 somethings. But the references are completely misplaced for what the like audience is. It's very strange. I I, I just struggled with that in a really big way. Uh, but okay. so, a point of comparison, because people would be saying like, you can be an adult and watch something with teens in it, and you absolutely can. But at the same time, you have to acknowledge that sometimes it's not necessarily for you, even if you are enjoying it. So something to think about is there's an HBO show called Betty. And Betty's about a group of teenage girls who are roughly the same age as their kids here in Reservation Dogs. And it's about them bonding together as friendships. And ultimately, the spirit of it is not that dissimilar to Reservation Dogs. As an adult, I can watch Betty in a way that I struggled with Reservation Dogs because there's actually a little bit more sort of thematically interesting material happening within Betty. It's a story about these female friendships taking place. And you can kind of find a mature adult way into the storytelling here. Like while teenagers will probably really get into Betty in a really big way because they can see themselves in her and connect to the thematic idea and how that relates to themselves. 
as an adult, there's still material you can grab onto. Reservation dogs, I just didn't find that. Okay. We'll be checking that out in the weeks ahead. It's called Reservation Dogs Binge here in Australia, FX on Hulu, elsewhere in the world. Um, you know what that means? We're at the middle of the show. This is the screen-watching middle bit. Simon, this week in the middle bit, we've got an interview. Yeah, I got to speak with a gentleman named Jonathan Hensley. If you don't know the name, you do know the films. He was one of Hollywood's most in-demand writers back in the 90s. He he wrote such blockbusters as Die Hard with a Vengeance, the aforementioned Jumanji. He did The Saint. And probably most high impact of all, he did Armageddon, the Bruce Willis quote-unquote classic. Now, he also directed the ultra-violent 2004 comic property adaptation The Punisher and is back with the Liam Neeson action pick The Ice Road, a chase through a set on the frozen lakes of the Canadian wilderness, which is in cinemas as we speak. From his home in Las Vegas, Jonathan Hensley spoke to Screen Watching about his latest alpha male epic. Lovely Las Vegas day out there. Oh, you've shut me out. It looks lovely. <laughs> I was just getting a, a bit of a better lighting here. I was being my own cinematographer. Always the director, always the DOP. Yeah, no, it's lovely to talk to you. Um, before we get started, congratulations on the film. It's 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 great fun and. Uh, um, I'm so I had to watch it on the laptop, of course, but I'm very excited to see it on the big screen. It's going to be a great big screen film. Oh, thanks very much. I mean, it's very interesting for me because this is my first um, film that's had a streaming um, audience. Uh-huh. Uh, so I so we're living in that world right now, and we with with the the business model of theatrical distribution having problems before COVID. And now having COVID contributing to those problems, we have a very interesting future in front of us. We don't really know. We, we, we think here that theatrical distribution will not fade away, um, but it's going to be still more for films like Marvel stuff and James Bond. And, and then hopefully some smaller action pictures like Ice Road. I think of the Ice Road, the Vistas, for instance, the big... Uh, the two, three, five wide anamorph- anamorphic that we shot it in, for instance, I think is good for a big screen. You know? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, we'll jump straight into it, I guess. I, I want to talk about the star of the film and I'm not talking about your man, Liam. I'm talking about this incredible frozen landscape. Um, it's so foreign to Australian audiences. What was it like to shoot in, in Winnipeg in winter? I've been through difficult shoots before um, and uh, we knew that it was going to be um, trying, to <laughs> say the least, you know. And and I'm, you know, I grew up to some extent in and around. I, I grew up both in England and in outside the Boston area in New England. So the New England weathers are quite harsh, and I'm a lifelong skier. So I'm used to cold weather. Cold weather does not phase me at all. But I was told that we were going to go down into the into the area where centigrade merges with Fahrenheit uh, at negative 42, I think 44 or whatever it is. And um, there was one day that I went out on location scout and it was negative 34 centigrade. So, so, so I know, I know. And, and, and remarkably the cast endured it. Like that section where Liam Neeson is in the water, that was a specially created little um, tub that we made, but, but out of doors. And so we, we lined it with plastic and, and Liam wanted to do it and he did it. And it was negative 27 centigrade that day. 
that he was down in that water. Now he was wearing a safe suit, you know, a, a survival suit. Sure, yeah. Um, but nonetheless, that's a tall, I mean, Liam Neeson is a 68 year old man. I mean, this is not a, that's not, it wasn't a, a small order, you know? So, so um, I'm very proud of the cast for enduring it all. And the, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just gonna say the cast on the very first day that we shot with Lawrence, Lawrence Fishburne, we were actually out on the actual frozen Lake Winnipeg. Yeah. This was a this was a specially created ice road for us that is identical to the ice roads that the real truckers traverse. And it was so cold that day that the actors could hardly say their lines. So wow. remember, we're playing this as if it's April. So in in the fiction weather of it, it's cold, but not that cold. Mm. So they had to act as if it was, you know, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and uh, so I'm very proud of the cast. But uh, They did an incredible job. Um, it, it also reminded me of how much I love, I guess, quote unquote, truck movies. And, and, and I guess more precisely, how much I love trucks shot well for the big screen, like Friedkin Sorcerer and Duel and what George Miller did with the Mad Max films. These are some of my favorite movies. And you and the team pull off some incredible stunts and some incredible shots with these giants. Well, thank you very much. I mean, again, uh, a picture like this is only as good as the as your your support um, group around you. And my department heads were just stellar. We, Mark Vancelo, um, who was the long, he was stunt coordinator and the long term double for Liam Neeson. He he was instrumental in that. John Leonetti, a long term associate of mine, colleague of mine. Uh, John serves really as the conduit between first and second unit. So we were able to do um, a matching of our first unit material with uh, the, the real actors mm -hmm. and our, our stunt people, our stunt personnel. Um, the way that was achieved um, was through the remarkable efforts of our, of our practical effects team that rigged real Kenworth cabs on the, on the on a, a top, a Ford 550 pickup truck. Oh, great. So, so we were with a stunt driver driving the pickup down below. So, so Liam could sit behind the wheel of the, of the Kenworth cab acting as if he's driving and we could have the, those guys, the snowmobile guys battling it out um, while the whole contraption was being driven at fairly high speed down those roads by a stunt driver. And, and then we were able to match that with the real rigs on the, on the same roads um that's so it was cutting edge stuff for uh, <laughs> that's amazing for 18 wheelers some of the stuff was film history stuff it was it was stuff that's not really been ever done wow. um, and 18 wheelers have never um uh had uh, been allowed onto frozen lakes where they're smashing into each other the way we did that was a first yeah and they were, they were incredible stunt scenes that, that that sequence is amazing and i guess that's what i that's what i love about your films and this film particularly but your films there's a genuine physicality about the 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 what's up on screen there's this it's not going to be the best poster quote but there's a real world sturdiness about the characters and the setting and the plotting there's a i mean there's a few cgi moments but generally this feels like a very in-camera kind of production thank you very much because it's absolutely intended and it comes from a uh 
a general cinematic or filmmaking philosophy, I have nothing against computer generated images. Um, my career goes all the way back. I started my career with George Lucas, who owned Industrial Light and Magic, who founded that company. And so many of, of, of Steven Spielberg's and George Lucas's productions, you know, I was, I was, I was a writer on Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, where we were doing sort of kind of low rent CGI. And in, in it's when CGI was just starting when in the, in the infancy of CGI. And Jumanji, so, of course, so you can't, we and, can't. And, and Jumanji with Joe Johnston coming in that way. And that, that was, uh, Jumanji was considered a radical advance of CGI. In, in fact, um, uh, the industrial light and magic um, um, tests for the elephant and the rhinoceros in Jumanji were being done at the same time that the dinosaurs for Jurassic Park were being done. Yeah, I, rem I remember a very famous um, interview or a very famous quote where they said, you can sort of do what you like with dinosaurs because the human eye doesn't know what it's seeing with dinosaurs. But when you're talking about zebras and giraffes and, and, and elephants, the human eye will pick up instantly. So Jumanji had to be even better than, than a lot of the stuff. Uh, that's, that's very interesting. So again, I there has been an awful lot of discussion among amongst uh, cinephiles, uh, filmmakers, and film fans, and this about the nature of CGI and when CGI works and when it doesn't, and this whole notion that the CGI images can't defy real world physics, and that you have to have al always a sense of heaviness and weight and all all of these issues. We've been grappling with this now for really a couple decades. Mm. So a film like this, I said, look, we have, we're gonna shoot this in February. We're gonna have real trucks. We have actors who are gamers, you know, they're, 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 they're willing to, to do it, to go for it. Mm. So why don't we just shoot this thing in camera? Why don't we just go for it? And, and any CGI we use, we'll use to enhance um, rather than just to fake it all. I mean, all of those shots through the windshield in a normal film, all of that's normally done with green screen. Mm. You film all that inside the cab on a soundstage, and then you then you put in all the images of the passing ice road outside the the passing windows. All of ours are real. That's all. That's everything shot out the windshield is the real frozen Lake Winnipeg. Mm. So that that in that sense, it's a radical film in in 2021. But I, I, I'm down with it. I'm glad you recognize it. I, 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 it's gratifying to me. Oh, I, I look for it in film. So much of what I have to do as a film reviewer and a film watcher is to sort of just go with the, the brilliant work of CGI artists, but knowing it's not real. So to see it on screen, I instantly recognize that this looked, this looked like it was a, a tough, real shoot. So I'm also intrigued by the, the contrast in the environments, the, the big open space, and then the miners trapped underground, and then the big open space again, and then the cabin of a truck. There's this, there's this very skillful film language being employed in what's essentially like an action movie crowd pleaser. Again, thank you. It was all designed, and that was um, we had a very we had a tragedy on the on the film after the after we um, finished principal photography, in, in that the brilliant production designer Arv Grewal. Um, tragically died at, after a few months after we wrapped film, but Arv was wonderful. And um, we talked at length about the claustrophobia of the mine 
giving way to the massive expansiveness of the ice road. And, we, and so all of that was planned. The, the, the mine itself was a practical build. We built it. So, so our fake that, you know, as so many of these subterranean cavities are faked in film, but he, they, they did a wonderful job. I thought that the, I th you know, I've been, I, I went down in a couple of these diamond mines. And if, if I were to show you my photographs that I brought back from the diamond mines, you wouldn't be able to tell between the diamond mine, actual diamond mines in our set. So we they did a very nice job of doing that. But yes, that, that movement back and forth between those two environments was absolutely part of our plan, you know, I guess let's talk about Mr. Neeson. He comes on board bringing this very um, unique screen quality. He has this tender, tough guy that, that he's made his own. How was working with someone with his experience? And I guess the same goes for Lawrence Fishburne. I'd like to think, and forgive my language, I'd like to think this was a no bullshit kind of production. It was a no bullshit kind of production. And, <laughs> and, 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 and uh, those are, are no bullshit guys, both of them. Um, and they're consummate pros and they're Academy Award nominees. I, I, Lawrence won, I guess. Um, and and uh, they, uh, I, we were lucky to have them. You know, I was just, I was absolutely thrilled when we, when you do an action picture like this, you kind of, the casting can kind of have a tendency to go out to the usual suspects. There are not a lot of working thespians that are that have the, the international renown to, to carry a picture that you really come down to a handful of people and the, you know i've been doing this now for 32 years and that small list has changed over the 32 years but the size of the list has not changed it's it's usually a very small number of fellas and liam Here's this guy who was played Oscar Schindler, you know, who's considered really a dramatic actor, has this new coat of paint put on him, you know, by Luc Besson in in uh, in um, in Taken, mm. and all of a sudden, with the with the huge success of Taken, he has this whole other aspect to his career, and he's being offered different kind of roles, and he's he's uh, seized the opportunity, and he he very much gravitates toward it. He likes doing it. Um, he's made, he made some headlines a while ago saying that he was going to stop doing it. I'm not sure if that's the case. I think he's in such <laughs> remarkably good condition. He's yeah. such a, I, I, I want his genes, you know. Um, <laughs> and the script know. gives him, yes, he pulls off the action man stuff. Absolutely. But there's moments, um, Notab without giving anything away, notably with Gertie, there's a, there's, he, he gets to pull off some real dramatic moments as well. And that's credit, I think that's credit to you, the storyteller. Well, Chose, thank you. I, I think that's why he took the script. I, I you know, took the project. I, I think that, um, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say. It, it's, I see a lot of these projects running around Hollywood, you know, so I'm able to kind of understand what actors are willing to do and what they're not willing to do. So you got to give them something, some meat on the bone. You've got to give them dramatic scenes. Otherwise, you're never going to have a chance of getting the, the top guys. Um, they want, you know, they all action stars, regardless of whether or not they're considered an action star, right? Which is which in some sense is a pejorative when it's applied. 
sure. regardless of that they they're real actors all, all of them and they want to you know they want to they want something to play so so yes i i'm very pleased and i'm very pleased with marcus thomas playing gertie mm. uh, you know he he's he that's very hard to do acting off the line like that you know yeah. i thought he was i thought he was extremely believable but. and we I sh we shouldn't sort of paint the picture of this film as a an alpha male kind of movie you've got the wonderful amber midsummer in there as tantu and she holds her own against all, the, all these uh big tough strong men she's she's every bit the the action lead herself i'm thrilled for amber i she was she was cast in the lead in predator really off the ice road um um she was a star before ice road but i think the ice road has really is really um sort of pumped it up she really pushed her out into the into i don't know if she wants to become kind of a, a next female action star but she certainly is going in that direction and it's these kind of films give you extreme audience awareness you know it's really good for your career so i but i'm really proud of amber she's uh she's a trooper she's a total pro versatile actress wonderful so have you had enough of the big outdoor environments? Are you gonna write yourself a nice two-hander chamber piece next? In fact, I am. <laughs> it's an it's an action movie, but it's but but a lot of it's on an airplane. Oh good. <laughs> Controlled so, so, environment. So so but but um the ice road is done really well and um it has a really good audience response here in the States. And uh it's so good in fact that there are rumblings i'll say that i'll leave it at that about um maybe going at this again possibly too. that would be wonderful because i think there's more to, more story to be told here and i and i think um i think everyone involved has done some of their best work including yourself i'm a huge fan jonathan um it's been wonderful to talk to you rialto distribution is releasing the ice road august 26 around australia um, thank you so much for being part of screen watching and for a, a great career that's ongoing. Thank you, mate. Thank you very much, Simon. Cheers. Simon, as we reach the closing minutes of this podcast, we'd like to take a look at the week ahead with the movies and TV shows that people can take a gander at. Uh, we've got some new and returning TV shows this week. RFDS, basically it's the Flying Doctors, but it's now called RFDS. Did you check this one out during the week? I haven't had a chance to watch it. No, I have a very, I'm ashamed to say, I've never seen an episode of the original Flying Doctors. So I, this may not be my cup of tea, but RFDS, I love sort of um, abbreviated names. Is it any good? Oh, look, I haven't seen it yet. I'm planning to give it a look tomorrow morning <laughs> if I can get around to it. Uh, okay. I've got like a fondness for the Flying Doctors. It's one of these shows that I watched as a kid. And I'd say that you're probably one of the very few people in Australia that doesn't have a strong emotional connection to the Flying Doctors. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I don't know what it was. I've never seen a McLeod's Daughters either. I watched plenty of a country practice. Maybe it sort of came at a time when, anyway, much my inner monologue coming out. Exactly. Netflix is screening a new series called Brand New Cherry Flavor. Now, this is about a, a film director in the very sort of dark and nasty 1990 Los, 1990 Los Angeles. Um, he embarks on a mind-altering journey that involves supernatural 
revenge that uh, apparently gets nightmarishly out of control, I'm read to believe. Um, that is starting on Netflix this week. Probably worth a look. The visuals look pretty spectacular. So I'm actually a little bit annoyed because I meant to put in a request to get screener access to this and I didn't. Apparently this is very good, so I'm really quite mm. keen to give it a gander. And on Amazon, we get season two of Modern Love. Now, this is the series that's based on the New York Times column that explores relationships and love and the human connection. The first series was pretty star-heavy. It had the likes of John Slattery and Tina Fey. Um, this one, a little less so, although still some certainly some quality names in there, people like Minnie Driver, uh, Kit Harrington, Anna Paquin um, all turn up. So I'm keen to see this. The first one, as with most anthology series, was a mixed bag, but there was always something interesting to watch. So, um, yeah, I'm a fan of Modern Love, the series, I mean. Yeah, oh, look, I like Modern Love as well as, uh, I don't mind a bit of Retro Love as well. Uh, the series... <laughs> The series was good. Like, there was a couple of episodes that I thought clunked a little bit in that first season. Uh, second yeah. season, I've seen a few of the installments. The first one with Mini Driver, I was really quite taken with. It's yeah, um, Maybe not even necessarily for the episode itself, because the episode's a little bit rote, but there was something great about seeing Mini Driver back on the screen in a oh. very charming, sort of rom com kind of a role. I adore Minnie Driver, and I think she sort of sort of melded into that L.A. existence and doesn't quite push herself as an actress, because when I do see her on screen, um, I'm always sort of just in love with her. I think she's a fantastic actress and, and should do more work. Now, the movies... Well, I was going to say, I'd really like to see casting agents uh, like pay attention to Minnie Driver in this episode. Like, I'm hoping it sort of revives something, because I'd like to see her sort of start taking on these sort of older, like, rom-com sort of roles. I think there's definitely a space for her here, and... Like she really just delivers in this episode. Now, before we finish with Modern Love, the other thing that you just need to keep in mind is that this series is from John Carney. Uh, John Carney's the guy that's responsible for making the movie Once and Sing Street. Uh, we mentioned Sing Street earlier in this podcast. Uh, Begin Again. He's someone who makes a lot of very emotional, like emotions on your sleeve um, screen viewing. And that's absolutely what this show is. So if you enjoyed Once, that's very much the vibe of what, a, what you'll largely get from Modern Love if you haven't checked out the show before. He was sort of one of that early kind of uh, red head with a stubbly kind of beard and a guitar slung over his shoulder kind of guys that um, are everywhere now, but uh, he was very talented. He did it first. I don't know why I said that. Um, <laughs> movies, debuting on, <laughs> movies debuting on streaming this week. Now, you've seen Beckett, and I know you're very high on Beckett. What can you tell us about Beckett, Beckett? Well, look, I don't want to talk Bennett. up Beckett too much, purely because I think that if I came out and said that it was such a... I don't know, like a, a thrilling drama and really sort of talked it up too much. Like you'd expect something that this isn't. This is such a low-key action film. The way that I would probably describe the film is the Bourne Identity meets the uh, Antonioni film, The Passenger. Wow, that is quite the reference, kids. <laughs> Google it. But um, <laughs> that's, Just, that's got me interested because Antonioni is one of my favorites and The Passenger is a great film. So, yeah, so um, this, is John, this is John David Washington. And like, I find that guy incredibly winning. Uh, he's in the lead role here. He's got a girlfriend in Greece. Uh, the two of them are traveling around Greece together, played by Alicia Vikander. Something happens to her and leads to John David Washington's character, the titular Beckett. And he's on the run from some people and he doesn't really understand why. So it's basically a guy who, he's not an action guy by any means. He's not really a physical guy. I think he works as like a computer web guy. And basically, he's sort of stumbling from, like, action sequence to action sequence, like, falling over himself and just not being particularly good. And it's kind of just him wandering through the, like, Greek countryside 
just encountering mm-hmm. people trying to get them to help him and then moving on when, you know, that resolves itself. And just, he finds himself in a fairly large, elaborate plot that's taking place. But there's nothing happening in this movie. It is just him stumbling around a place. It's very watchable. I can watch this guy for hours on screen. I'm well into it. I have a theory. Mm. You, I, I, I have a look at the uh, the synopsis here, and it says, following a tragic car accident in Greece. That's how the synopsis starts. Now, am I right in assuming, and I say this about every film, and my wife will back me on this, if we don't like a film, we'll find somewhere in the first 30-odd minutes where a character bangs their head or they drop something, and we say that at that point they died. And everything else after that point is an afterlife drama, something happening in the afterlife. And this, Beckett, Sounds exactly like a wander through the afterlife for me. Am I under something, Dan? Look, I You're mean, still there? Am I under something? You could try reading the film that way, and you possibly could. But also, I don't know. I think sometimes you have to take these films for what they are and not think about them as being Minority Report, which the final acts of that film is absolutely a post-death. Oh. Yeah, dream sequence. I, it's called it's called Jacob's Laddering. Everything after at some point, <laughs> it's all happening in the afterlife. Spoiler, kids, but that's what Jacob's Ladder is about. But I, it's, I guarantee if you don't like a movie, just find some point in it where the main character might have died and it's a much better film all the way through. Okay, also on Netflix, it's called Memories of a Murderer, the Nielsen tape. So this sounds like a barrel of laughs. Serial killer Dennis Nielsen narrates his life and horrific crimes via a series of chilling audio tapes recorded from his jail cell. Wow, that sounds like fun. It stars Dom DeLuise as Denise Nielsen. No, he doesn't at all. Um, <laughs> these Netflix what? crime... Th- <laughs> It's, it's these Netflix crime thrillers. Boy, they walk a razor's edge between fascinating documentaries and tasteless sort of um, uh, exploitation of horrific acts. But uh, by all accounts, this one's one of the better ones. It's called Memories of a Murderer, the Nielsen Tapes. Just going back to Becca, I'm not sure if we mentioned it, but it's on Netflix. Just as a yes. thing as well. Yeah. Good idea. Uh, a couple of things that are on big screens for the couple that exist. Uh, a movie called Queen Bees is hitting cinemas around Australia. This one is certainly for the older crowd, even older than me, Dan. And yes, there are people older than me. Um, it tells the story of Helen, played by the wonderful Ellen Burstyn. She has to go into a nursing home for her her twilight years. In there, she finds that it's very much like a high school clique. You've got a group of ladies, played by Anne Margaret and Jane Curtin, all of whom control the... Um, the uh, the nursing home. You've got the wonderful James Kahn who decides to try to woo Ellen Burstyn and also in there is Doc Brown himself, Christopher Lloyd. I did have a chance to see this and um, it's very sweet. It's very, very specific demographic uh, but they will enjoy it and it is in cinemas, limited release all around Australia. It's called Queen Bees. In some special event cinema around the country at Goma in Brisbane, the In Pursuit of Truth series continues with a movie called Process or The Trial in English. It's a, a, um, a look at Joseph Stalin's show trials of the 1930s, which take, took on this very theatrical element. Um, and it really was the birth of fake news and the devastating consequence it can have on certain political parties. That screens at, at uh, 8 p.m. on Wednesday the 18th. I hear that um, movie is hilarious. The- Yeah, it's a a hoot. Um, At the Capri Theatre in Adelaide, there's a Jungle Cruise charity screening. Now, this raises funds for the Cancer Care Centre. Go to cancercarecentre.org to get your tickets or through the Capri Theatre. That's on the 19th of August from 6pm. Tickets are $25. That's a great cause. And if you're in Darwin and you love your zombie films, the Darwin Deck Chair Cinema is screening a Canadian film called Blood Quantum. Now, the dead are coming back to life. 
outside the isolated Micmac Reserve of Red Crow, um, but the indigenous inhabitants there are strangely immune to the zombie plague, so it becomes this um, um, indigenous culture versus the white man battle to the death. So there's plenty of political subtext and a lot of gory zombie action. So Monday the 16th of August from 7pm. Fantastic. Now, we do like to take a look at this week in history. So we're going to take a look from August 13th through 19th. On this week, we've got August 15th, 1939, The Wizard of Oz premiered at the Chinese theatre. Oh, what a, what a landmark was. Not a success when it was first released. It was a bit of a box office flop, but it obviously has gone on to greatness in the years gone by. On August 16th, in 2008, comedian talk show host, Ellen DeGeneres, she wed Australian actress Portia de Rossi in Beverly Hills, California. Happy anniversary, Ellen and Portia. And we've got another uh, wedding anniversary here. Like This went on pretty well. Like, I think there was a lot of love to be found. Uh, August 19, 1993, Kim Basinger married one Alec Baldwin. I don't think it ended well, but who will ever forget their fantastic appearance on The Simpsons? That was, uh, that was one of the funniest episodes in a long time. That's true. Birthdays, August 14, one, Steve Martin was born in Waco, Texas. Now, I ask you off the top of your head, fave Steve Martin movie. Look, that's a very broad question. So I've got... Yes, it is. Because he's made so many movies and I find him so just beloved. Like, really, he's a national treasure. He's a global treasure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to list three movies. Uh, First of all, traditional sort of picks. So Three Amigos is very dear to my heart. Sure. I recently saw the movie Roxanne for the first time and I was really taken with that. Yep. But my favorite movie that he's in, even if I don't think most people would think of it as a Steve Martin movie, is the David Mamet film, The Spanish Prisoner. Ah, wow. That's a wonderful film and a great choice. One of his most underseen films, but it's a one, he's fantastic in that. Mm, He really is. Like, I think that's a fantastic film. If people haven't checked that out, like it's well worth your time. I'm so glad you said Roxanne. It is one of my favorite Steve Martin movies and one of his great comedic performances. I remember at the time there was a real groundswell of support for him to get an Oscar nomination for that, which he didn't, unfortunately. Um, He was absolutely lovable in parenthood. Um, I'm old enough to remember seeing the jerk at the movies and remember what an impact that was. Um, And now I've talked myself into a corner because there's so many great Steve Martin films that I can't think of. I think I'm probably going to say Roxanne, I think, in the end. I think that was one of his funniest performances. He also did an adaptation with Claire Danes of his book Shop Girl, which was a very dark sort of black comedy drama, Mm. which was underseen. I quite like that one. uh, yeah, which was, was, was really good as well. So happy birthday, Steve Martin. And also on August 15, that other great comedian, Mila Kunis. She was born in Chern... Ch- oh, I should have read this through. Chernipsy, Ukraine. I didn't realise she was born in the Ukraine, but um, she's good. I like Mila a lot. What's your favourite Mila Kunis comedy? <laughs> um, well, she did Friends with Benefit. Oh, no, she did... Um, Forgetting Sarah got Marshall. one coming out. Which one? Forgetting Sarah Marshall. <laughs> That was terrible. Um, See, I quite, I, I quite like the Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I mean, I think she's a very likable screen presence. She probably hasn't found the role that she's most suited to. I think they're still sort of umming and ahhing a bit. Obviously, she was she burst out with the that 70s show and that was you know that was her at her most adorable but she's coming up in a film with Glenn Close in which she plays a, a an opioid addict and it's a real dramatic turn for her. and I can't remember the name of it but if there was a database of movies on the internet you could probably check that out but um happy birthday to Mila Kunis what was the name of the Wachowski siblings movie that she played a space janitor in uh the uh was that was Jupiter, Jupiter Ascending Jupiter Ascending 
Yeah, like I generally quite like their movies, but man, that film, that really, it was a challenge. Oh man, I love Jupiter Ascending. I'm so glad you reminded me of that because I thought I thought that was a nutty, nutty ride. If you're going to go in, go all in. Um, <laughs> and boy, did they. <laughs> actually, just looking up and down her IMDb listing, she's actually made quite a lot of movies. I forgot she was in Ted and she was very good in Ted. Oh, yeah. and, I certainly, and I certainly forgot she was the um, object of... Uh, Natalie Portman's rage in Black Swan as well. So she's made some really good movies. Let's move on. Jennifer Lawrence, born on August 15, 1990. Uh, favorite Jennifer... No, we won't do that. Uh, Taika Waititi, who has pretty much, I He's think, everywhere. sponsored this entire episode. Aug- I reckon. <laughs> born August 16, 1975 in Wellington, New Zealand. And a guy who, I mean, definitely a character actor. You probably know him by face. August 17, 1943, Robert De Niro, born in New York City, New York. Ah, Dan Barrett, we've come to the end of the show. Let's do that sign-off thing. Uh, Folks, we're signing off. This has been Screen Watching. Uh, My name's been Dan Barrett. We'll continue to be. You can find me on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. Start your day with my free newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching, and you can find that at alwaysbewatching.com. It's got the big stories in TV, streaming, and movies sometimes. And on Friday, we do have the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which recounts the big shows that launched that week. I'm on the Twitter at Simon R. Foster One. You could read my words over at ScreenSpace. That's screen-space.net. Go to the Screen Watching Facebook page to get all your latest screen watching information. That's at Screen Watching Podcast. And check out our Screen Watching YouTube channel where there's uncut interviews and fresh trailers whenever I feel the urge to put them up there. And of course, if you do enjoy this podcast, follow it through your favorite podcast app. If you're loaded up now, hit the follow button. The podcast will just start flowing on in on a weekly basis or twice weekly because we did two this week, Simon. It was a very busy week. If you hadn't have a listen, we did a Paramount Plus Australian launch special through the week. So do check that out. Uh, that is in all your, app, all your uh, podcast feeds and the videos over on the YouTube channel. So um, plenty to check out. Absolutely. This has been Screen Watching. Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure. We'll be back with more Screen Watching this time next week. See you, mate. Have fun, everyone. Bye-bye.